All right, everybody. So we have Dr. Carrie Jones with us today. She is the medical director of Dutch Test, and she is a naturopathic doctor. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. And for today, we are sticking with Operation Smile for my donation. Um, so I think, obviously, I think that's a great cause. So that's where <laughs> today's will be going. And uh, can you just give us a little bit of your background, maybe why you went the naturopathic route and how you kind of got interested in all of that? Yeah, so I went to undergrad with the intention of going to conventional medical school. I have an undergrad degree in um, biology and then business, and I was getting disillusioned in conventional medicine. I was volunteering at two different hospitals, and I thought, this is, this is not the medicine I'm going to get into. I, got, I have to rethink this and figure it out. And I ended up working. I needed a job. I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I needed a job. And so I worked for the naturopathic medical school out in Portland, where I am. And I, once I realized what it was, I thought, oh, this is where I'm supposed to go to medical school. This is the mm. kind of doctor. But this is the stuff I believe in. And so that was many years ago. And so I went to school there and did my residency um, in women's health and hormones. So I focused primarily in hormones, endocrinology um, through most of my career. I've had been the medical director of two clinics that have focused in hormones, gynecology, endocrinology type stuff. And now I'm the medical director for a lab that focuses in hormones. So I always joke that if you have a pediatric question, don't ask me. And if you hurt your knee, don't ask me that either. <laughs> I don't know. All right. if, you have a horm if you're a hormonal mess, I can help you with that. Awesome. And so, I mean, I've looked into like naturopathic doctors. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, there's different views on it. You know, it's people who don't know a lot about it and they might think it's maybe like woo-woo. And it's really, I mean, you're very still science-based. So... Mm -hmm. Could you just briefly say like what the difference in what you do compared to traditional, you know, a med student and traditional doctor would do? So when I went to medical school, I had to learn all of the ologies as, as well. I mean, I had, we had, you sure. know, anatomy, physiology, you know, just all the ologies. And so we had to learn all the pathophysiology and biochemistry. We had to learn the medications and the, you know, how things present the materia medica, just like, or the, um, um, just the way things present, like you guys, or like, and just conventional medicine does. And then on top of that, we had to learn the naturopathic principles, how you view a case more from a systems base, um, and then approaching problems, you know, root cause, figuring out, peeling back the layers versus just, oh, you're, you have this problem here, take this medication eight minutes later, you're out the door. It's more like, all right, let's, let's go back and let's look from the systems because all the systems are connected and, you know, from the top down, from the bottom up. And what, do you need medication? Do you need surgery? Can we do this with diet and lifestyle? Can we use supplements, vitamins, nutrients, things like that? So it's definitely a mix. It's like the, um, uh, some people will hate me for saying this, but it's like the original functional medicine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I love the principles behind it. I think it's a kind of a shame that anybody wouldn't want to approach it that way. You know, that mm -hmm. they think just, well, let's just throw medicine at it because obviously nutrition and sleep and all these other things are going to be super important. Um, I think part of it is people's natural tendencies that they want a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And um, as you and I were discussing, you know, I, I kind of right now I'm on a very restrictive diet to kind of help some GI issues. And I remember talking with somebody and they said, well, it doesn't always work or it doesn't really work for most people. If it did, don't you think everybody would do it? And my thought was like, no, absolutely not. Like we know a calorie deficit causes fat loss, but you know, tons of people are obese. Right. People definitely would not follow a, a super strict diet over just taking a pill. Most people do 
just want to take a pill, unfortunately. And I, I think yeah. some people also just don't know about the alternative. You know, they just right. go to a traditional doctor. They say, take this medication and they don't know about the other options. Right. Um, at the same time, and, and I would say people don't want to change either. Right. People, you know, sleep. I can't sleep at night and people go, all right, here, take Ambien or take, mm-hmm. you know, Vanessa or Sonata. And, um, and I'm like, well, hold on. Maybe if you didn't, you know, eat all this sugar at night and, and drink at night and stay up late and be on your phone and, right. you know, do all this stuff that maybe you'd sleep better, but it's way easier just to do all your habits and then just pop an Ambien and call it good. <laughs> right. And it, it is so much easier. And, I think to some degree, we, we have to cater a little bit. I mean, we can't tell a patient, well, you're not going to change your diet, so I can't help you at all. I mean, that's, of course, you know, these medications exist for a reason and they're helpful, but I do think it's a shame. So many people jump straight to them rather than mm-hmm. looking for, I guess, healthier or, you know, what we traditionally think of as healthier methods like the sleep and right. nutrition. Right. Um, Absolutely. So in one of the big topics, as we were saying, that's really popular is adrenal fatigue. And that's actually... I think for years it's been popular. And mm-hmm. um, I think in, in our community, in my community, like when I hear adrenal fatigue, you know, I, I kind of roll my eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. That's okay. I do too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, can you explain what most people think it is and the misconceptions and what we really mean when we're talking about that? Right. So, well, and adrenal fatigue is sexy, right? Like you can, mm-hmm. when you say you have adrenal fatigue, People identify with that because usually they are so tired. So they're so now they have this really sort of sexy name that they can say to it, or you know, an easy to roll off the tongue name. I have adrenal fatigue, but what 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 they're thinking is that well, first of all, it's not Addison's. So for people who are listening who have Addison's disease, when you have adrenal atrophy, where your adrenal glands literally cannot make cortisol, that's completely different. This is the mm-hmm. part where people are you know they're they're extremely tired, they're burnt out, um, they're not doing well. And so they get a cortisol test done and their cortisol might be low, not zero, but just low. And they're told, oh, you have all the symptoms and your cortisol is low. Therefore, you have adrenal fatigue. Mm-hmm. And well, they call it adrenal fatigue because they have the impression that the actual adrenal glands themselves just sort of give out, sort of like an ovary in menopause. Like eventually over time, the adrenal glands just sort of shut down and don't very make very much cortisol anymore. And um, while the symptoms are 100% true, I believe people when they say they're tired or burnt out or, you know, whatever they have, I believe them. Um, The concept behind adrenal fatigue is, well, actually, it starts a lot higher up because it's everything you do in your life, everything you're exposed to starts in the brain. And so it's the brain's decision, the hypothalamus and the pituitary tells the adrenals whether to make cortisol or not to make cortisol. And so... The concept of adrenal fatigue is really more like a HPA axis dysfunction, but that's a big mouthful and not as easy to say. So people will say, often say adrenal fatigue and then put it in quotes. They're like, well, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, right, you right, know what I right. mean? It's, it's a bigger thing. It's really, it's a more of a systemic wide thing. I'm like, exactly. Okay. Yes. Yes, it is. It is more systemic. We just hyper focus on the two little adrenal glands on top of our kidney. And I'm like, no, we actually... It's much bigger than that. It's immune and it's brain and it's, you know, in GI, it's thyroid. It's like, there's so much at play here, but the symptoms are real. It's just the the quote diagnosis. So for those real symptoms, how do you go about addressing it? Um, And like briefly, we talked about how some people, they do have a normal level of cortisol, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, when it's elevated throughout the day is wrong. um, Mm -hmm. And then other people do just have lower levels of cortisol. So how do you go about addressing something like that? And it depends if it's high or low. So for those people, like you said, you, first, if they have really high cortisol, their you know their HPA axis is really upregulated. Um, then we're doing all sorts of calming stuff. Whether I'm saying, hey, look, 
We need to look at the way you manage your job or, you know, your relationship, your, your school, your kids, what have you doing things like meditation, making sure you're getting good sleep, um, you know, just calming stuff. And then there's certain nutrients and herbs that are really just calming in general. There's a really great one called L-theanine. There's certain herbs like magnolia, passion flower, skull cap. I mean, there's a reason that we drink chamomile tea at night. Chamomile, right, is, is calming. It's a reason why, you know, hops and beer um, can make you feel sleepy. Can, it's a depressant because hops is calming. And so mm-hmm. those sort of herbs are really great for the, for the people who are too revved up. And then on the flip side, for the people who are too low, that I'm trying to figure out why is the brain downregulating you? So is it a brain issue? Um, have you had a traumatic brain injury that's affected your hypothalamus or pituitary? Are you on a medication that's really suppressive? So think steroid medications, whether legal or illegal. So the kind of, you know, the, the gym kind or like prednisone. But also remember asthma inhalers, um, allergy, nasal sprays. Those will all do it. Um, certain medications like Accutane for acne will do it. Um, and then just chronic long-term stimulation. You know, the brain just downregulates. It's like, okay, I'm over this for lack of a better analogy. And it will slow down the um, output of cortisol or it might convert your cortisol to cortisone, which is inactive. And so you may have these people who have this in increased inactivation of cortisol in an attempt to get you to slow down. So we treat that entirely different. So I go for the cause, like why, what's going on with the brain? Have you had a concussion? Are you on one of these medications? Do you have long-term stress? And then we're using nutrients and herbs and stuff to help the brain, help blood flow, help circulation, help get your cortisol, help communication, get things up. Okay. And for these things, I mean, as I admitted before we started recording, (laughs) is some of this stuff is a little out of my wheelhouse. And a lot of the topics I've discussed with other people um, I'm very confident in my knowledge on, whereas for some of this stuff, you know, I mean, if you just made up like half of what you just said, I would, I would really know. <laughs> so, I, did, I promise I would not mislead you. <laughs> so I can't necessarily, you know, um, like back up everything. And I like to look at everything through, uh, you know, the evidence that we have. And, and sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, we can't always wait for 20 years of research and 10 meta-analyses to come out and tell us these things. But I, I'm sure if you're recommending these things there, we have data on it, you know, I'm yeah. sure you wouldn't be recommending it. So right. um, what is well, and the, some of these things, they're actual part of the biochemistry. Like think about it to get you from norepinephrine to epinephrine, which is adrenaline, you need vitamin C, mm-hmm. you know, like, like it's actually the cofactor in the biochemistry chemistry, chemistry equation. Mm-hmm. So if you are not able to make a lot of adrenaline or epinephrine, if that's one of the reasons you're tired and you're not eating a, a diet that, has vitamin C in it, you deplete Mm -hmm. in vitamin C. Um, Or maybe you're fighting other infections that are requiring vitamin C. You know, it's a a potent antioxidant. And so then vitamin C is a good one for adrenal health because it helps you convert norepinephrine to epinephrine. It's actually part of the biochemistry. Is that something you're just saying, okay, like you look at the diet and you say your diet's low in vitamin C? Are you testing vitamin C? Um, usually diet for sure. I always go into diet with people, find out, you know, what they tend to eat or, um, or don't eat as a lot of people will avoid food groups for whatever reason or things mm. like, you yeah. know, gluten or just, I don't eat carbs or I don't eat soy or I don't eat dairy or whatever they don't eat. Right. Um, and then a lot of times it's symptoms. Um, I do, I do testing on them, um, depending on the person and I'll say, all right, we're going to add in, we're going to add on some extra vitamin C as part of your protocol. If and you're then low, actually, do you, 
are you measuring, I guess, like, how often are you measuring these levels, the cortisol first throughout the day? Are you measuring multiple times throughout the day? I do and, measure throughout the day, yeah. Okay. Because then, I'm looking for the circadian rhythm. So in a blood right. draw, it was, you know, when you get your blood draw, it's a combination of um, the cortisol bound up, bound up to cortisol binding globulin and what's free and available. So if you mm-hmm. get a cortisol read in the morning, that's 15, you don't know if that, what percent it, uh, that cortisol is free and what percent is bound up. And, and then most people don't want to get their blood drawn throughout the day. <laughs> they, don't, they, you know, they don't like to get needles stuck four times in the day. So we have to find alternatives to try to see what their cortisol is doing because we're looking for that circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm, they should be high in the morning, get your butt out of bed, get you going. It's called the cortisol awakening response, which is also super important for autoimmune, super important for blood sugar regulation. Uh, it's anti-inflammatory. And then you want your cortisol down at night because that's when your melatonin comes out. So you want to sleep and, you know, rest and heal. You want your glymphatic system to turn on in your brain. So you want your cortisol nice and low when you go to bed. So when the timing's off, is it just a matter of let's get your sleep habits better? Usually, yes. (laughs) That's definitely the easiest and the cheapest to uh, start with, for sure. Are there people who that doesn't work for? And if so, what do you, where do you go from there? Yeah, and it also depends on their day. So it depends on their schedule. So if they're night shift workers versus day shift workers, if they get up at four in the morning versus people who get up at seven in the morning. So it really sort of depends on what their normal schedule is. But sleep is what I focus on absolutely first. Are you going to bed on time at a decent hour? Are you off your electronics before bed? Because that blue light goes into the into the um you know, to the eyes, it hits the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain and, and mimics sunshine. So the brain goes, all right, well, I guess, I guess it's light out. We should put out more cortisol and we don't want that. So getting off electronics at night, winding down, dimming the lights, what have you, and trying to get people, you know, to go to bed. And that often, if you can reset your sleep, you can often reset your whole circadian rhythm. But then on the flip side, for those folks who can't get up in the morning, in order to get up, in order to stimulate your cortisol awakening response, you need light light into your eyes again. So um, at this time of year, I'm telling people either if you live in a place that has sunshine, when you wake up in the morning, first thing, open your blinds, you know, look at the bright light outside or go outside. And if you mm-hmm. look or if you live in an area like I do, Portland, Oregon, which is currently gray and raining, yeah. then buy those um, those full spectrum lights. Buy either the the box that there, there are these boxes you can buy that sit on your desk. Get a full spectrum light bulb to put in one of your lamps in your room and turn it on in the morning because when you get that bright light, it triggers the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal. Like, oh, it's the morning. Let's make cortisol and gets it up and it helps you retrain just by going to bed properly at night and getting proper light exposure in the morning. I mean, that's how our circadian rhythm is governed, just all through light and dark. And it's so cheap. It's so easy. So I, I haven't looked into those boxes too much. Um, I mm-hmm. think I might get one because mm-hmm. right now I get up at around 4.30 or 5 and Yikes. it's not light for, yeah, it's not <laughs> light for probably two hours or so after mm-hmm. that. Um, and I definitely have some like problems staying asleep and just, I guess mm-hmm. throughout the day, you know, it's always been a little like foggy. Um, yeah. So so there's some re- decent research on those boxes that it yeah. seems to, okay. Yep. Yep, definitely. Because they're sun mimickers. And so the light that they emit um, mimics the sun. And that's what you're trying to get in your SCN um, in your brain, that light to trigger it to go, all right, 
make CRH, and then that tells the pituitary to make ACTH, and then you make cortisol. How much so, um, exposure to those is usually recommended? So you don't have to stare directly in them, so you don't need, feel like you need to blind yourself every morning, mm -hmm. but you just need to have it on around you. So if you're, you know, like making breakfast or getting ready for your day, and the, the boxes are usually portable, um, you know, just put it on your kitchen counter and then move it to your bathroom counter and then, you know, sort of take it with you, like you would take, maybe take your cell phone yeah, and just yeah. have it, you know, and have it on because you just want, you want that light, that bright light that your eyes can see it. You don't need to necessarily stare at it. Okay. Um, but I do know people um, in my old office, you know, we would have it right on our desk. So as you were sort of in your office sort of charting or doing whatever you're doing, people would have their, oh. we call them ha happy lights. And so they would have their happy light on and they would have them on for a couple hours in the morning just to really, especially where oh. we live, which is really sort of gray and dark for most yeah. of the year, have them on a couple hours in the morning. And when do you helpful. usually try to get start getting away from the blue light? Like three hours before um, going to bed, or is there? Yeah, so I think research recommends at least an hour before bed. So if you go to bed at ten, you know, definitely by nine. But I, um, because our where we are in the United States in our season, we're getting dark around you know four thirty five o'clock at night. And so mm -hmm. historically, of course, humans follow the light dark cycle, and historically, we would start to you know wind down, go to bed when it got dark outside. So I tell people when you, when it's five o'clock is way too early, but like consider switching or dimming the light on your cell phone. Consider, um, you can actually change the background of your cell phone to red. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So those yeah, are so, kind of legit that function. Yeah, well, I'm hoping so. <laughs> yeah, I do it. So, um, a couple hours. So I usually somewhere around like six or seven, I will, I have, um, I have an iPhone and iPhone has, um, mm -hmm. you know, short, like quick buttons. And so I have a quick button that'll switch it to red, um, around six, seven o'clock at evening. And then I have the blue light blocking glasses. So I have those okay. kind of orange tinged, <laughs> lovely glasses that I wear at night. Um, and I think I also have a, I track, I, tr I have a, I have no affiliation, but I have a, I have an aura ring. And so I track my sleep every night. And the more I wear my, that I remember to wear my blue light blocking glasses as part of my routine, the better I sleep. Okay. The more um, deep I get, because I'm, I'm getting more darkness. Are you familiar with the, uh, I think it's called F-Lux or Flux for the computers? Flux. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. I have that as well. That as well, yeah. And they have so, it for the phone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I just figured changed it's, my it's whole more screen. or less the same thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I'm not really familiar with the rings at all. How accurate it's are those? Like, um, How does it work? Like people will have like a Fitbit or something. Or they'll have the you know an Apple Watch. I actually have never ever had those. I like um, the rings because it's super easy for me. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so I have nothing to compare it to. Unfortunately, I can't say. Well, yeah. just to say this now, my ring says that I don't know. But what I do like is that it absolutely seems to track pretty well. Not a hundred percent, but hmm, probably above eighty percent of my sleep, like when I get, like what my temperature changes through the night, my heart rate seems to match up. Um, when I just do my heart rate the old fashioned way, yeah. <laughs> like the ring, uh, respirations. And then when I'm in sleep, REM and deep. And then if I wake up, so if I like wake up, um, you know, three in the morning or what have you, it, my ring seems to catch it and will show me it changes mm -hmm. on a app. It'll change color. The wake up. Okay. It's connected to an app. Yeah. So, um, and I turn, you can turn it in airplane mode through the night, um, okay. much like most devices. So I just airplane mode it at night and it still records it, connect it in the morning and then I can see my little graph okay, and I can cool. for sure see, which I'm sure like people who have other different kinds of trackers, I know what screws me up. You know, I know mm -hmm. if I'm up to late, if I know if I have sugar before bed, 
for sure if I have alcohol, even a glass in the evening, my sleep is completely screwed up. Gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't sure mechanistically how it works. I've, I've not really looked into it. Like I said, is it just based on your heart rate and temperature? It's or heart is... rate and heart rate temperature and heart rate variability. So okay. I'm just getting into heart rate variability as a marker of um, your ability to stress resilience, your ability to right. handle stress. Yeah. Right. Cool. So the better cool. sleep you have, the better your heart rate is, um, and the higher your heart rate variability, which is a better stress marker. Cool. Yeah. Um, when I was younger, every night would finish with some sort of dessert. And when I mean younger, I mean like even a year ago, <laughs> I would always like not necessarily <laughs> dessert like ice cream, but maybe like a homemade ice cream. It's like something that had a reasonable sugar content. Um, mechanistically, why is that going to affect our sleep? Um, well, sugar. So when you when you when you or well, sugar, but I meant liver. When so when your liver is um, and your pancreas are processing the sugar and you're getting the blood sugar fluctuations, most people will wake up somewhere between one and three in the morning. So if they have a glass of wine, which is high in sugar, or they have some dessert before bed, then they'll get this sort of pancreatic liver um, thing that happens. And sure enough, between 1 and 3 a.m., they'll wake up mm. as a result of it. And if you skip the dessert before bed, and if you skip the glass of wine before bed, people say, oh my gosh, I've slept so much better. I'm like, right, because you're not working so hard to balance your blood sugar and your insulin, your detox, if it's alcohol, through the night. So you're talking, I mean, the amount of wine isn't that great. So you're talking even a little bit of sugar. You when, you really com- when you combine the sugar and wine, when you combine the sugar with the alcohol, um, then it's a double whammy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The processing um, of the alcohol. Cool. So uh, obviously a lot of people use melatonin for helping mm-hmm. them sleep. Mm-hmm. So I-, I personally have not noticed it help me sleep at all. Um, I'll get in, in a bit as to what I did find it helped me, but do you find most people it helps with and, and when do you tend to use it? Um, yes, I'd say it's probably 50-50. So um, remember most of melatonin is made in the GI tract um, mm-hmm. and very little melatonin is made in the pineal gland, but it's the melatonin in the pineal gland that really sets the, helps set the circadian rhythm. And so um, the, the actual taking of melatonin, like, for, like it doesn't work at all for me. I've taken yeah. melatonin at physiologically, we don't make very much melatonin out of the pineal gland. We, you know, it's like 0.2 or, you know, mm-hmm. 0.3. But, you know, what we do take as supplements, they're generally one milligram up to five milligrams. And sometimes you can take it a lot higher. And so there is some debate, like maybe we're taking way too much. We're over melatoninizing ourselves. So I, but I've tried everything. I've tried the 0.5 all the way up to mm-hmm. or three. So no effect for you, though, really? No effect for me. But I, melatonin production is not my problem. When I measure my melatonin, um, that's not what's it. For me in sleep. Is that a blood test that you're using? It's not. It's a urine test. You catch okay. the, um, there's great research that shows the melatonin that's produced turns into a metabolite that gets excreted in urine testing or in urine. And so we, you pick it up on urine testing. And so you okay. do it in the morning. So it'll catch your melatonin that's through the night and then stored in your bladder and you urinate it out and catch it. Gotcha. So, yeah, yeah. So and I... mine's always fine. So I'm like, Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like you almost want it to be bad because then it's like, here's a problem I can fix and get better. Right, so exactly. Like Especially annoying. when I cross time zones. I've even, you know, when I, I travel a lot for my job and even mm-hmm. then people are like, oh, take melatonin to help you acclimate. I'm like, nope, it doesn't work. All right. Yeah, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it hasn't helped me for that. Um, but what's interesting I did notice helped is, so for my GI issues, I tried a keto diet and mm-hmm. I'm definitely not like a keto zealot or anything like that. Um, and it makes it harder to get in a lot of calories, but it did help me from a GI standpoint. But I will say that 
I started getting acid reflux. And I've actually read a lot of people do keto to help acid reflux. Um, but I've never had noticeable acid reflux in my life. And I started getting to the point that it was pretty bad. And I, I didn't want to go on anything like a meprazole, especially long term. Um, and then I just started reading about people using melatonin. And I had never heard of melatonin for GERD or anything like that. Um, but I read a few studies where people with acid reflux had roughly half the levels of melatonin in their blood compared to, I don't know if it was blood or saliva, but however they measured it, um, it was half the levels. And so I've been taking it now for about three weeks mm -hmm. and no more reflux, actually. That's amazing. So, yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever used it for that or if you've I heard haven't, much about that. I haven't, but if you, and I don't know the mechanism behind it. I don't know if they said that, but one of the reasons um, melatonin, much like serotonin, is made in the gut is that, like I said, it's a huge antioxidant for the gut, but it helps quite a bit with um, peristalsis and mm -hmm. moving things along. So it's entirely possible it's helping move things down and out faster, you know, down into the intestines faster versus even giving it a, a moment to hang out and um, then worsen reflux um, because of the sphincter there. Yeah. And I don't know the actual, like, like if there's a sphincter mechanism that melatonin has. I don't know that. Yeah. I think when they compared it to a meprazole, they both had very similar um, efficacy, mm -hmm. but the difference was it actually it caused the sphincter to close more so. Um, Melatonin way, Yeah, then the okay. omeprazole didn't have any effect on that. Of course. Um, and so when they looked at acid levels in the esophagus, uh, you know, they were still high to some degree with people with omeprazole, but it was lowered throughout with, um, or no, sorry, I said it the opposite way. Omeprazole did lower uh, the amount of acid, which is obviously how it works. Right. Um, but melatonin, I thought, was a better way to actually address the problem, which is that the sphincter wasn't closing. Because this way, you're not you're still digesting everything just as much. You're not losing that acidity in the stomach. You're right. just preventing it from getting it where it shouldn't be. So absolutely, uh, which is what's rarely... interesting about meprazole because, um, like, the mechanism of action, as well as you know, it's proton pump inhibitor, right? So it like lowers acid levels. But um, what they find is that it's not always that that's not the problem it's the problem that the sphincter won't close so the normal mm -hmm. production of acid is coming up and and really obviously irritating and so so it doesn't ever address the cause i guess my point not often you, you want right. to improve that sphincter tone so the door closes completely and then the acid can just stay in the stomach and do its job right and that that's kind of going back to our first topic with the naturopathic versus like the traditional medicine that, that's something that just annoys me because like I said, I'm heavily research-based in my mm -hmm. recommendations, and I, I you know, like to be very scientific. But when I see something like that, and I see that there are, I think I came across at least three studies showing uh, melatonin compared to omeprazole and showing mm -hmm. at least similar effects. Mm -hmm. But when I ask any traditional medical doctor, what do you do for acid reflux? I prescribe a PPI. <laughs> yeah. I've never, ever heard. I never even until like a couple weeks ago even really heard about this melatonin for GERD thing. It's just not, yeah. I've never learned about it in school. It just wasn't brought up. And my thought is like, why? Why wouldn't anybody would probably rather take melatonin with yeah. minimal side effects compared to a PPI, which we know for years and years and caused a lot of issues. So lots um, of, yeah, a lot of issues with nutrients and minerals and vitamins and for sure. Yeah. So I don't know, just a little frustration. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that's a good reason why I like to be a naturopath doctor because. Yeah, it's a. Uh, there's especially like endocrinology in general, there's, there's so many different pathways and so many things affect so many other things. It's, and you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is just because it, it seems 
it's almost insurmountable when you look at like at times when you look at what where a problem arises and if it's not this one quick fix then how do we do it um right. and so thyroid is one that i think is really interesting and yeah. um again not to completely rag on traditional doctors because I, I think a lot of them are great but Absolutely. one of my first experiences with seeing like oh this person doesn't really know what they're talking about was when i was only like 19 or 20 years old and so um you know being into lifting or bodybuilding or whatever at young age i wanted to kind of just always get things checked and my thyroid was a little low um, like your tsh well so that was a thing is we he just did tsh and he said okay. your tsh is normal and then i looked and like my t4 my my free T4 and free T3 were below normal. Mm. And he's telling me how, no, your TSH is normal, so it's fine. And I'm like, how, like, the TSH is kind of like the start, right? Mm. And, like, you're looking at that, but the TSH isn't the active thyroid hormone. Mm -hmm. So right. you're telling me that my thyroid's normal when my active hormones are low and my TSH is, you know, I guess fine, although the range at the time was, I think, a wider range than it. I think it's been narrowed a little bit now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, just looking at that, and I was like, it just seemed very odd to me, even as like an 18 or 19 year old guy that like, you're telling me that's normal when you're only looking at like an indicator. Mm -hmm. um, and then we did eventually, I convinced him to uh, try um, levothyroxine. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I, he put me on 150 micrograms. Right, that was your starting dose? Yeah. Wow. And uh, TSH instantly was like almost zero, like yeah. 0.04. That's why I'm shocked. Um, and then, yeah, and then T4, though, was normal because that's what I was taking. But mm -hmm. my T3 was still low. And so I, I kind of want to get your insight on this because... I was going to say, do you want to know why? <laughs> well, so I have a theory that... Um, so I kept taking more T4 because I was like, okay. And I literally got up to like 300, maybe more micrograms. Yeah. And T3, it, it never... T3 was... It doesn't matter how much it took. T3 never um, increased. So... I think I know what you're going to say, and I'm not sure, so go ahead, and then I'll... <laughs> I go first. Yeah. Um, so, I, and this is what I find also really frustrating. I think lots of practitioners, naturopathic included, I think we just forget the biochemistry of, um, of how thyroid is made. So TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, is, the, uh, is reflective of the amount of T3 that you have in, in your pituitary, only your pituitary. Mm -hmm. So if your pituitary is super happy you have good T3 levels in your pituitary, then your TSH will be a, you know, quote, normal level. But what happens then is that you, you know, you, you make, your thyroid makes T4, which T, for people who don't know, T is tyrosine, four iodines. So T4 is an, a tyrosine with four iodines attached to it. So if you're not getting enough tyrosine in your diet or iodine, then you may have, you're going to have thyroid problems there. But T4 then has to convert into T3 in your periphery as well. Mm -hmm. And if you don't convert into T3 in your periphery, and there's a million reasons why that gets blocked, um, or it, what, it can then go to something else called reverse T3, which is uh, inert, inactive, then that doesn't register back in the pituitary. Because the pituitary, the, 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 the things um, that decide this are called deiodinases, and the deiodinases in the pituitary are different than the deiodinases in the, in the rest of the body. So when people have all the symptoms, I'm cold, I'm constipated, I'm gaining weight, I'm, I'm, my brain is sluggish, my hair is falling out, whatever, I can't get pregnant, but yet their TSH is normal. I'm like, right, because all those things are out in the periphery, right? They're out in the, your fingertips, your toes, your, um, your hair follicles, your, your uterus, your skin, whatever is peripheral. And so you're not 
converting from your T4 to your T3, like you should, out in the periphery. And so we prescribe T4 medication, uh, levothyroxine or Synthroid, mm-hmm. um, and we get taught by people, doctors, com- pharmaceutical companies, oh, the body will automatically convert it to T3. And it right. turns out, like I said, there are a ton of reasons that it would not convert. And so... Um, you can either address the reasons it's not converting uh, or add T3 in as well, which is called lyothyronine or cytomel. Mm-hmm. My so, assumption for you is that your pituitary was fine. <laughs> yeah, well, so you, can, uh, you went into more detail there, which is good. So my initial thought was you'd say, talk about you know, reverse T3. Mm-hmm. And as I was you know, reading about it, I think, like I said, I was probably around 20 now when this was prescribed. And so I looked into reverse T3. And there was that site, like, Stop the Thyroid Menace or something yep. like that. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so I was like, oh, well, my reverse T3 must be high. But I tested it, like, four different times. And it was always kind of normal. Now, I don't know if it really fluctuated within normal, but it was always mm-hmm. pretty much, like, the center of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really confused me because I was like, okay, I'm taking this T4, and I'm not, I don't have high levels of reverse T3. So mm-hmm. how do I not have high levels of T3? But it sounds like you're saying there's other. Yeah, there's you're just not issues. converting at all. Yeah. So the, a big reason that you would make a lot of reverse T3 is if your cortisol or norepinephrine was high, then your body will um, mechanistically push more into the reverse T3. But there's actually a whole lot of reasons that you would just not make T3. So if you're missing uh, certain nutrients like selenium, um, if you have. Like women with and well, men too, high estrogen, uh, low DHEA. If you have high leptin, um, there's just there's a whole variety of of reasons that the body metals, environmental toxicants. I mean, there's a lot of research if you look at peripheral hypothyroidism that Mm -hmm. T4 doesn't convert into T3. And unfortunately, in this day and age, we're we're getting those things more and more. You know, more and more people's systems are broken, or breaking, or not doing. Not, not on their A-game, and so mm-hmm. their ability to convert is not that great. Now, it's fine in the pituitary because, you know, the brain, not always, of course, but this is where it gets confusing. My TSH is normal. My TSH is normal. I'm like, well, that means right. you have T3 in your pituitary. Right. Different deiodinase. This is, we got to look out in the periphery. So so what do you do? Do you just give the T3 as well, like you, the cytomel? Like I said, you can just add in the cytomel with it. Um, or, and, or then try to find the reason that you're not getting that conversion. So going down the list of things that block conversion and work on those. So if you have somebody, if you're working with a woman and you know, she's estrogen dominant, meaning she's got, you know, way too much estrogen sort of throughout her cycle. I get, I understand estrogen fluctuates, but maybe fluctuates bigger, stronger, higher than it Mm -hmm. should. Um, if you've got somebody who has really high leptin levels, they're leptin resistant on fasting, testing, um, you know, just things like that, then you're going to address those things and that can help if she, if she or he are deficient in selenium, um, you're going to, you're going to, or iron, iron's another one that will get in the way of conversion and how many anemics or sort of suboptimal iron people are out there a lot. And so that'll all affect your T4 to T3 conversion. So you can try to find the cause or or the, obviously the quick shortcut is just to give T3. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that that's kind of goes to what I was saying before about how complicated. I mean, we're talking about one thing here. You yeah. Know, most people have more than one thing wrong with them. So right. you have I one know. thing and you've got to find, okay, it could be these 15 things that are causing mm-hmm. the problem. 
I mean, I, I don't, a lot of respect for you to, to take the time to be able to go through those that's, things. So. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, that's the big problem is that the medical model we have right now doesn't allow for practitioners to right. sit and, and like really go down these rabbit holes with people. We've got about eight to 15 minutes in a traditional visit and, you know, oh, that's about enough time to, yeah. you know, say, all right, let's look at the labs real quick and be like, you need this prescription. Here you go. Nice to see you when you're out the door. So I, yeah. I don't necessarily blame, I don't blame doctors. I, I think mm-hmm. just the medical model is, you know, if you're seeing 30, 40, 50 patients a day, you can't go down rabbit holes. You just can't. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was going to say it's, it kind of goes back and forth because on, the model is we see so many patients, they just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, it's probably frustrating as a doctor. Like, let's say you really were just, you know, what, I really care about this stuff and I'm just going to sit down with the patient how many of your traditional patients are going to actually then listen to those recommendations? You know, if you have a patient who comes in just when there's a problem, hey, I, I think I have thyroid problems, and you say, well, okay, here's what we're going to do, and you give them this whole plan and all these habits of change, how, you know, it probably gets frustrating when you mm. give these recommendations and nobody listens to you, you know? I know. I mean, I think the stats I show that even, I don't, I don't remember the percentage, but some surprisingly high percentage of people don't even fill their prescriptions after they right. go to the doctor for the problem. So if they're not right. even willing to fill the prescription, you know, it, it's a it's a tough situation. It's totally tough. Yeah, it's tough all around. Absolutely. And plus, if, if you know, thyroid is sort of deemed as this sort of magic pill that will help with weight loss and metabolism. So most people mm-hmm. don't even, they don't want to sit and listen to all the suggestions to try other ways to help. They're like, well, just give me the pill because I want to lose mm-hmm. weight and I don't want right. to have to work at it. Like, okay, that's not how it works. It's not magic. If it was magic, then everybody would be on it. But um, speaking of which, do you find that a calorie deficit itself prevents people from converting as much uh, T4 to T3 yes. supplementally? It's a survival mechanism. Think about it. If you're in a calorie deficit, if you're in, if you're in a starvation, and there's research to show this, then then it's to protect you. It will slow down T4 to T3 conversion. Because yeah. you're because it's it's sensing oh you must be in we must be in starvation and and I need to protect that you know the thyroid's a pretty mo- a master gland and it needs to protect right slow everything down so that because it doesn't know how long you're going to be in starvation and it, the brain consciously we know we're trying to lose weight but the thyroid doesn't know the difference between I'm trying to lose weight and it's true starvation I don't have food around me mm-hmm. it doesn't know the difference and so it will slow down that conversion and subsequently right. there goes your metabolism <laughs> right well and then, yeah that, that was my experience as well because i know some people think that it'll just help you lose all this weight um i think if you were to take a ton of t3 it would but yeah. you know in the uh you know bodybuilding fitness world there are certainly people who abuse these drugs and just take tons of it but um i don't know if there's really any amount of t4 you could take that if you're in like a severe calorie deficit that's going to convert because like you said the body's just going to prevent it from happening right yeah, absolutely. And then if you do, as you know, if you're taking or getting way too much T3, now you've pushed yourself into hyperthyroidism, mm-hmm. which has a whole host of risks. I mean, oh my goodness, it can really affect every. Your, oh my gosh, your heart and just yeah. you know, it's so much stuff that you have to be really careful that you don't throw somebody into a hyperthyroid storm. Yep, um, and I, I know you're obviously very familiar with estrogen. And that's not something I've looked too much into personally, although I know it does. <laughs> Probably don't need affect. to. <laughs> right. And for the most part, a lot of guys don't. Um, but I looked a little bit into DIM. I don't remember the... Uh, Diandolmethane. Yeah. 
So um, do you find that a useful supplement? Because I, you know, like I said, I've tested a lot of things on myself and I've tested seeing what my testosterone and estrogen levels Mm -hmm. were. And I like things I can test and and so, or measure, I should say. Um, And so my understanding, which is not so great on DIM, is that it doesn't necessarily lower estrogen. It converts a more harmful form to a better form. Um, you, can, you can tell, by the way, I'm asking this question that I'm not overly familiar with it. So maybe no, no, you can it's good. me. I will tell you, this is probably my absolute most favorite subject ever to lecture okay. about. So this is a good one. So uh, DIM, methane. Actually, so the brassica family, your broccoli, your kale, your cauliflower, Brussels sprout foods, they contain indole-3-carbonyl, I3C, which you can also find as a supplement. When indole-3-carbonyl hits acid in your stomach, it needs acid to break apart. Um, one of the main things it breaks into is DIM, methane. DIM does, can take your two main estrogens, your E1 estrone and E2 estradiol, of which both men and women have, and it will push it in phase one detoxification towards the healthier pathway. So in phase one detoxification, you can go down the, there's a two pathway, a four pathway, and a 16 pathway. The two pathway is considered the healthier, less carcinogenic pathway. Your four pathway is considered the more carcinogenic pathway. And your 16 pathway is considered a proliferative pathway, makes things grow. So great for bones, bad for boobs, bad for heavy periods, clots. So you're trying to divert yourself away from the four and headed towards the two. So it's good for a woman or a man who has a lot of estrogen in circulation is if you take DIM, you can drop your E1 and E2 out of circulation and push it towards two, the two pathway. But you do have to be careful on those menopausal women who already don't have very high levels of estrogen. They're menopausal, so they have menopausal mm-hmm. levels. And if they're favoring the four pathway, which is, more carcinogenic, not guaranteed, but more. And then you put them on dim. There is a chance she will call you and say, my hot flashes are back. My night sweats are back. I, my brain fog is worse. I feel more depressed because what you've done essentially is drop her menopausal levels of estrogen even lower. So you, mm-hmm. Dim is not a cure all for everybody. You have to be careful. Now, dim really only affects phase one detoxification. If your phase two detoxification is not good, then you have not addressed the problem. Or you may feel better for a while. Your estrogen symptoms may decrease for a while. But phase two is where you neutralize all these phase one metabolites. And so you have to make sure you know the difference between your phase one and phase two because the treatments are different. This The, 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 the way you address it is different. Okay. So, so DM yeah. is used kind of as this panacea for estrogen. Um, but it could make problems worse if your phase two is not that great. Okay. Cause I've heard people say that it'll kind of more regulate estrogen. Like that's where I was kind of like wondering, there's like, Oh, if it's too high, it brings it down. If it's too, yeah, it doesn't, it won't bring it up. Nope. It won't bring it up. It'll only bring it down. So that's not true. Yep. That's not true. But what it's also known, um, there is some research that it's an anti aromatizer. So I met a lot of men like it because it, blocks the conversion to a degree of testosterone estrogen it's that's obviously not as strong as something like an astrozole sure. uh, the medication but it is helpful for that man who's mild um and then it will help lower estrogen so it does do that but again if you can't neutralize it then you um when 
when your body makes a two or a four, uh, when you go down that pathway, um, they can continue on to something. They can become something called a quinone with a Q, which is a reactive oxygen species, which is pretty damaging. We don't want that. And it can bind to DNA and it can, it, uh, the four pathway will actually bind to DNA and, that, and it breaks out and causes holes in your DNA. And of course, we don't want holes in our DNA and mutation risk increases. And that's why it's called the carcinogenic pathway. But my yeah, point okay. is with DIM, if you're going, if you're pushing the DIM, the two pathway, which is great, that's the pathway you want to push. Um, but you can't then get it out through phase two and on to phase three, then it will, it can go backwards. It can, it can, it can sort of um, go back and become a reactive oxygen species. Um, and it hangs out in your DNA and, you know, it's wrong as it hangs out in your DNA. So you have to wait for your DNA repair system, uh, which is called DNA excision base repair, uh, to come in and fix it, which increases the risk of mutation. So there's all these sort of DNA related things that we need to be careful with. Mm-hmm. So yes, DIM is great, but definitely be careful. You've got to work on phase two. And then of course, phase three is when it gets out through your intestines and out in your stool. Right. And there's all things that can go wrong there too. Yeah. Again, complicated. <laughs> Very so. complicated. I know. So I tell people, and as more people are getting into SNP testing, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, genetics, genomics, um, yeah. in phase two, you're looking at your COMPT, your COMT, that's the enzyme you're looking at. So for people who are, you know, who, and I saw some of your speakers you've already been on have talked about, you know, genomics. And so yeah. if you know already that you have a slow COMPT, that's your phase two. So that means you're going to have a slow ability to get you from your phase one estrogen into the neutralized form and you need to support that enzyme help make gotcha. it go faster yeah and you were saying because i had mostly heard it preventing or causing conversion of one type to another but you're saying it is inherently an aromatase inhibitor as well it, there is some studies that i have seen that yeah that i have okay. seen that it's primarily known to, for its ability for phase one detox of estrogen but there are some studies that say that you can use it. It has a mild anti-aromatizing effect. Okay. Yeah. So, and that's not, which you is know, why men like it, which is why bodybuilders like it because they want it. Right, that. right, <laughs> right, right. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's interesting just because like, obviously as you get older, a lot of men start converting more testosterone yes. to estrogen. Yeah. Um, something I was thinking of though is because like I was saying before, I like to measure things. And so if it's just from one type to another, I was thinking if you measure total estrogens, you might get a similar value. Um, but if you were to measure something like maybe like estradiol specifically, you would probably see that change then if you were taking DIM? It should go down. Mm-hmm. It should go down. And DIM generally works rather quickly. It doesn't take months to kick in. Usually it takes days to weeks. And so what it does is it takes your estrone and estradiol and it converts it into 2,4 or 16 hydroxyestrone or 2,4 or 16 hydroxyestradiol. And then when it goes through COMPT into phase two, it becomes methoxy. So to methoxy estrone, to methoxy estradiol, what have you. And so you can test those markers. You can test your hydroxy and your methoxy, and you can watch them hopefully go the right way and, and go down. So, okay. yeah, they are Very testable. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Cool. yeah, and you can test your COMPT, of course, right? People are getting SNP testing. They're doing their DNA testing, and then you can know if you're a COMPT++, plus plus, you're, you're a slow person. Slow person. <laughs> you're a slow person when it comes to estrogen, but you're also slow in getting rid of your um, your dopamine, your norepinephrine, and epinephrine because uh, COMPT and MAO are what uh, help you. Those enzymes help you degrade your dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. Have you done any genetic testing yourself? 
Oh yeah, I, for sure. Are you kidding? Yeah. Did really? you go through uh, what is it, Prometheus? Did you use I that did. at all? I did it years ago. I did Twenty Three and Me back when mm-hmm. they had the full plates, and okay. so um, I now is, is time has evolved and stuff. Twenty Three and Me, um, which I is still okay, but they've actually shrunk what they give you quite a bit. Back yeah, when I did yeah. It probably, gosh, I don't know, four or five years ago, you got everything. They just gave you everything, which was great. So I have so much information about myself. They gave you, so I did 23andMe as well, um, mm-hmm. but I had to, at least I thought I had to put that raw data through Prometheus yes. and then it gave yep. me everything. So you, well, if you know how to read the raw data, I do not, but some people do. Um, mm-hmm. They know how to look up the RS number and figure it out. Um, but I put it, I put it through a different, so I didn't use Prometheus. I used something else, Opus 23. Okay. Um, Ralph is a master trainer for Opus 23. So he put it through, oh, okay. through that for me and then. Gotcha. Um, walk me through it. And I put it through a few other things. I have a few other friends who own snip breeder companies and um, the great thing is they all said the same thing. So yeah, <laughs> it was all I, good. Uh, I forget yeah. who I was talking about it with. It might've been Ralph. I'm not sure. But um, when they go through the Prometheus, you know, there's like 22,000 genes that they mm-hmm. interpret and you know, it was like 75% green, which is like positive, And mm-hmm. then, you know, like some, a lot of neutral and then a few like negative, but the negative you know, even if it was like 10%, that's still a ton of different things. So I was looking through, I was like, you know, what? I'll go through the negatives and then I'll go through the positives as if I was going to go through all 22,000. So <laughs> I spent like a day just reading all these negative things. And I would highly recommend you don't do that because it was just put a huge damper on my day thinking I was just going to die. It was like high risk of obesity, heart attack, every possible thing. Oh my gosh. Thing. Yeah. But remember though, you know, I mean, I'm sure lots of your speak, your, your people on your podcast have said this, just because you have the gene doesn't mean it manifests, right? So right. as the saying goes, you know, that your, your genetics loads the gun, but it's, it's your, um, it's your epigenetics, it's your lifestyle, your diet, your habits, which you're exposed to that pulls the trigger. So, and I say the same thing with estrogen. I have people that say, oh, I have the slow comp, I have slow COMT, but then I test them. I text the test, their hydroxy and their methoxy and and they're fine. The ratio between them is good. And I'm like, well, it's not manifesting in your estrogen. So you might have slow according to the report, but it's not slow in your body or your body's figured out other ways to help you, support you. So yay body. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and most of these things that we're talking about, it's not one gene. You know, when I say mm-hmm. that there is the high risk of all these different things, there was also, you know, 10 that said you were lower risk. You know, right. all these are multifactorial and everything, a ton of things go into it. So. Right. Absolutely. So, and it's the genomic research is just exploded much like microbiome research. So there's yep. just so much we don't know. And so much we're finding out literally every day, like the amount of research that comes out on, you know, when I look and check into PubMed is just, Oh yeah. Overwhelming. It's really <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah. So I was thinking of it's, it's, it's like, I guess it's a little bit morbid, but not really. It's like, I feel like with how much is coming out now and it's such a, like an amazing time to be around and to see it. Mm. I almost feel like, you know, if, if somebody got polio like a thousand years ago or whatever, you died well before, you know, we cured it. It's it's almost like, oh, OK, they were just one person who did it. But imagine if like you were one of the people who died like two years before the cure came out. It would be like, oh, my God, I feel mm-hmm. like we're like we're like at the age and like in this time where it's going to be kind of like right when we're getting like really old <laughs> where we have some like amazing genetic data and like things yeah. that we can do to our genes, you know, yeah, we're, like just like, behind it. Like the next generation. It'd be great for our kids and our kids right, and our grandkids, right. you know, like, dang it. <laughs> yeah, we were so close. Yeah, we'll or know like, so much more. We'll be able to stop aging, like, right when we're, like, 
90. And it's right. like, uh, we just can permanently be 90. <laughs> right. Where everyone else will be permanently whatever. Yeah. <laughs> They're nice, healthy, young age. So uh, I like to end on kind of like an actionable step for people. And we yep. talked a lot about hormones and I guess manipulations and things. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is feeling like they have a hormonal issue and, you know, people could feel fatigued for a million reasons, they could feel a lot of these symptoms for a million reasons. Um, they're feeling just kind of like off. Where can they start to even like try to get a hold of this and, and really sort out all their hormones? So first of all, I, my much like you, I'm a big fan of tests. Tests don't guess. And so if you're a woman listening to this and you are a cycling woman, then make sure you're testing at the right part of your cycle. So mm. most of the hormones that were estrogen, progesterone, we, we want to catch on day like 19, 20, 21 of a typical 28-day cycle. And the reason is, is that your progesterone doesn't come out until the second half of your cycle. So if you go and get your, your hormones tested on day six or day eight, and your doctor says, oh, your progesterone's low, it should be low. It should be low then. It's not mm -hmm. until the second half that it comes up. So my, like, I always tell women, like, make sure, don't waste your time and money and, and until you know what your cycle is, count with day one being your first day of bleeding, actual bleeding, some women's spot, and then they, mm -hmm. and then they, then they bleed. And then I'm like, count forward, count forward, day 19, 20, 21, then get your estrogen and your progesterone um, tested. And then when it comes to thyroid, you know, I say, make sure you're, you're try to request the big picture, like what you got, you know, try to get your TSH, but also get your free T3 and your free T4. And, Try, you know, ask, see if you can get your reverse T3 and um, may, if you have autoimmune in your family or if you've already been diagnosed with autoimmune, get the thyroid autoimmune markers. And this applies to men too. I think people forget, um, I'm glad you brought up thyroid because I think people forget men can get thyroid stuff as well. We commonly mm -hmm. think of it as a female thing. And then men, when you get your testosterone drawn, get it drawn first thing in the morning because testosterone yeah. is supposed to be Highest in the morning, right? For certain reasons, it's it testosterone rises to make other things rise. So, don't get your testosterone drawn at noon. Go right when the lab opens, and let's see what your ability is when it's supposed to be at its peak. But I have this all the time. Men are like, "Oh, I had a break, and I just ran to the lab in the afternoon." And I'm like, mm, "No, yeah. no, no, no! Got to do it at a certain timing." So, test, but make sure you're testing the right time of day or the right time in your cycle if you're a woman, uh, a cycling woman, and and then go from there. Then you'll have the right data to work with. Awesome. So basically, you know, don't just assume that this symptom means this problem. Go get things tested. Just like you said, fatigue. Somebody might hear this and say, oh, I have fatigue. It must be thyroid. But mm -hmm. I mean, there, if you, if you type in fatigue and if you just type, <laughs> I have fatigue in Google, you'll probably get, you know, six million searches and reasons as to why you have fatigue. Everything sure. from you know, distress and all the way to nutrients, think iron, B12, B6, you know, just hormones, cortisol, thyroid. I mean, there's just a million reasons for you didn't sleep really well last night, your melatonin's right. too low, whatever. And so you, like, you kind of want to like at least get the basics to try to narrow it in, figure out why you're tired awesome. or why you have whatever symptom you have. Great. Well, Dr. Carrie Jones, thank you so much <laughs> for lecturing everybody, including me today. <laughs> uh, where can people find you? I know you're on Instagram. Where else? I am on Instagram. Yep. It's dr.carriejones, dr.carriejones. And then um, at Dutch Test. So D-U-T-C-H test, dutchtest.com, which is a hormone test. So you can find me in both those places. Great. All right. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks so much.